kind of know about you, but I've had one of those weeks where I have needed the Lord to hold me um, fast. Um, my heart wandering away, running to idols, giving up in despair. Um, but I found, um, as often he does, renewing his, my sense of his presence in my life through worship. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. If you are visiting with us and don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to send you one free of charge. If you're on Facebook, just message me, get on our website and find my email address and email me. We would love to send you one. We are finishing up today our series in the book of Zechariah. And so um, I would love to ask you uh, for advice on what book of the Bible to do next. And so if you want to email me this week, um, we will start up in two weeks a new series. Um, been soliciting advice from others, um, but I would love to know as we go through this time where you are finding the Lord drawing you into his word um, now. We would, I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open. We are going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 12 through 14 today. Uh, we've printed the whole of chapter 14 in the worship guide, but for time's sake, I'm just going to read verses 6 through 11 right now. This is God's word, Zechariah chapter 14, starting with verse 6. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Henanel to the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and ask his blessing on his word preached? Lord, as we come to your word, it is because we need to hear from you. We need you to shine your light into dark places in our own hearts so that we could turn from them with grief unto Jesus and be refreshed from the one from whom these waters flow. We need you to speak to us in our discouragement and encourage us so that we could dwell in your presence and security. We need you, O oh Lord, to do a work of redemption, maybe for the first time in someone, calling them out of darkness into your glorious presence. Lord, would you do all of these things by your Holy Spirit, working through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh... The passage, I'm sure as Mark was reading the New Testament passage this morning, it was a little uncomfortable. The scene of God's judgment. And that's how the book of Zechariah ends in chapter 12 through 14. Really, from 11 through 14, that's how it ends. But 
Children, have you ever been reading a book and thought, you know, this is really good. I, I want to read just one more chapter. Then you start itching to figure out how this story ends. And so you flip to the last chapter because you just can't wait anymore. Well, we do that because we want to know how something finishes, to be sure that the good guys win and that good triumphs over evil and that the world is made right again. And that's what the end of the story tells us. That is why it is the most important. A bad movie can be redeemed by a good ending. A good ending can redeem anything that's mediocre, but a bad ending can ruin a good movie. The ending is the most important thing. And we want to do this. We have this intuition, this drive to do this because, because God has made us with a very strong desire to see the world fixed, for things to be put back, for for the evil to be cleansed out of the world, to see the good guys finish well. In the Bible, that happens when God returns to judge the world. Judgment is a cleansing process, putting the world right again. And so if you've got your Bible, Zechariah chapter 12, starting with verse 1. We're told that this section here from 12 through 14 is the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. That burden or oracle, as your translation might read, is a special type of word from God. It's a word of judgment. That's the key that these three chapters go together as one Unit. In fact, the book of Zechariah ends with these two oracles from 9 through 11 and 12 through 14. And there's some similarity in these two sections. Uh, both vision of a coming king to his throne in the city of Jerusalem and establishing his kingdom. And the oracle ends with this beautiful picture of peace in chapter 8 of verse 14, living waters are going to flow out of Jerusalem and into the eastern sea and half of them into the western sea. They're going to water the world and and as a result it shall continue in summer or winter. Seasons won't stop this. There'll be no dry spells. Everything is going to spring to life because there's life flowing out of God's presence as he has come in judgment and established his kingdom. Verse 9, the Lord will be king over All the earth and he will be the only name in all the earth. And then in verse 10, the whole land shall be turned into a plain, a beautiful place in a desert region of Israel. This was good news of a flowering, peaceful meadow. And in verse 11, because the Lord has shown up and brought his judgment and is enthroned in his kingdom. Verse 11, Jerusalem shall be inhabited and there shall Never again be a decree of utter destruction. That's a code word for judgment on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall dwell in security. You get this beautiful, peaceful new creation. The world first, though, had to pass through the judgment of God to get there. Because judgment is cleansing. Judgment is like a a bath or a shower. Just as you go into the shower to wash away the filth and come out clean. 
what God is promising is that the day of judgment when he comes will be that. It will cleanse the world of filth, of defilement, of evil. So this is a very loud and chaotic section. 9 through 11 and 12 through 14 is in its structure. It's very unclear. These through 12 and 14 are these sequential events and 12, 13, and 14 is this one event being described from different camera angles. It's tough to tell. It's a little disorienting. And I think it's chaotic and disorienting for a couple of reasons. One, the book of Zechariah itself is a bit chaotic. We've said this all along. It's very difficult to find a structure, a clear structure in Zechariah. It is disorienting at times. And I've said this, that I think that's very purposeful on Zechariah's part as he's piecing together his book. It's because life is chaotic. We like to think that life is well-ordered, that it's moving from one point to another, that with enough resources we can make our plans. But how often do our plans get disrupted by chaos? And during this time of Israel that they were in, it was a very chaotic, disorienting time. And so I think Zechariah is writing his word to people in such a way as they understand what this life is like for you. But also know that behind the scenes, this is what the Lord is up to. And I think one of the reasons that chaos is difficult is because we lose any sense of safety. Any illusion of safety. So we're constantly on edge during the chaos. We feel our weakness. We feel the threats all around us. Psychiatrists have a term for this. They call it hypervigilance. It's a side effect of trauma. That sense that... I'm always in danger. So the fight or flight mechanism is constantly activated. And the more trauma you have, the greater your hypervigilance. Or in other words, chaos on the outside creates chaos on the inside. And so I think Zechariah is structuring his book this way. It's disorienting because life is disorienting. But he is bringing the hope of God's kingdom of God's redeeming presence into the chaos. And what he is promising here in this judgment oracle is that God is going to put an end to the chaos in our need for hypervigilance once and for all. And the other reason that these chapters are so loud and chaotic is because the judgment of God is unsettling and disorienting. None can stand against it. God is showing up in final judgment. The book of Zechariah has been building up to this point. We have seen hints of it along the way. Last week we saw the divine warrior arriving back into Jerusalem to bring salvation through judgment. In fact, the scenes that are described here are like a Michael Bay movie. Things blowing up and being destroyed everywhere. Things in utter chaos. Chapter 12, verse 4. Horses will be in panic and people will be struck with blindness. Things moving everywhere. No one quite knowing what's going on. Verse 9, when God the King shows up in judgment, the nations that have come against Jerusalem will be destroyed. In verse 13, verse 8, two-thirds of the people will perish. Then in the chapter that I read earlier, a day of the Lord is coming. 
how verse 14, chapter 14 begins. And in the prophets, the day of the Lord was this climactic event of judgment. God the king coming to cleanse the world of sin and establish his kingdom of peace. And these two chapters, in fact, reference that day nine different times. The Lord is going to fight for his people. And he is going to fight against the nation. And he is picturing this in verse 4, in verse chapter 14, as standing on the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And such a great earthquake occurs that that mountain is split in two. And the Lord stands there, one foot on the east and one foot on the west, as the people are passing through his presence, his judgment into safety. Verse 12 Chapter, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord, the one who stretched out the heavens and the earth and founded it and formed the spirit within man has arrived back on the scene to bring history to its final climactic point and creation is so disrupted by his presence that there's neither day nor night. Everything is set at unease because the Lord has arrived in judgment. And here's the thing. This announcement was good news for God's people because the judgment of God meant that he was putting the world right again, back into its proper order. It means safety for his people. And that goes through this climactic event that's described in chapter 12, verse 2 through 8. A battle is seen, a siege of Jerusalem by the surrounding nations. Now, remember that this was Jerusalem at the time was a city that was in the process of rebuilding. Its walls had been torn down. The temple had been destroyed. It was in a very vulnerable position, completely unable to defend itself. And so the announcement of the nation surrounding it coming to destroy it would have been a very threatening prospect. But the Lord had already promised in Zechariah to be a wall of fire around his people. He would be their warrior king who would protect them so that when Israel's enemies come, he will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. So what the nations of the world come to fight against God's people in Jerusalem, the Lord is going to make Jerusalem like a heavy stone that can't be moved. And when the people destroy, try to destroy it because the Lord is there defending his people, those threats will be cut to pieces. And the enemies, with their cavalry of horses, all of their war machines will be struck blind and thrown into confusion by the Lord. Without much effort, bringing peace and protection for his people. And when Jerusalem fights, they are going to be like this weak, vulnerable people. Without much strength or much resources, will be like a fiery torch in the sheaves. Children, a sheaf is just a bunch of dried up grain, dried up into a bundle so it's very dry and catches fire very easily. And see, what he is saying is, I am going to defeat your enemies through judgment. 
Now, watch this stunning reversal. It's strange what happens on that day when the Lord will destroy the nations of Israel, surrounding Israel. On that day, as he pours out on the house of David and the inhabitants, this is chapter 12, verse 10, they're going to look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And in this context, it appears that what's going on is that they will mourn because they had been a people in rebellion against God, but God in His graciousness is showing back up to deliver His rebellious people from their enemies. They're going to look on Him who they rebelled against, the one that they pierced, and yet God was graciously coming to deliver His people. Now, that is the stunning reversal of the gospel. An unfaithful people being saved through judgment by the God that they had rebelled against. John quotes this verse on the lips of Jesus when the soldiers pierce the side of Jesus to make sure that he's dead in John 19.37. They, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, in their rebellion against the Lord who had shown up to deliver pierced his side in rebellion. And as a result of the chaos of judgment in chapter 13, verse 7, God is going to strike the shepherd, the king of Israel, and the sheep are going to be scattered on this day of judgment. But then as a result, the struck Shepherd are going to call upon the name of the Lord, and he will say, these are my people, the Lord is my God. And Jesus quotes this verse to his disciples to describe what's going on as he's going to the cross. I'm going to the cross as your shepherd, and I'm going to be struck, and you're going to be scattered. And in fact, that's exactly what happens to the disciples, they all flee from Jesus. In other words, the great day of judgment, of cleansing the world from sin, has already fallen on Jesus at the cross. And as a result, in that day, starting with Chapter 13, verse 1, on that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanliness. A fountain that flowed from the pierced one side and leaves the worst sinners holy, blameless, and free from accusation. The guilt of sin washed away by the judgment of God falling on Jesus so that the river of grace that flows from his side is an unending river that can wash away all of our sins at any time, regardless of what we have done. But on this day that the great judgment of God fell on Jesus at the cross, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is not just the past 
penalty of your sin that's been dealt with, but the present power of sin in your life. Because when Jesus bore the judgment of God, he died to sin and defeated it as the ruling power of sin in the world. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he ushered in the beginning of the new creation that's promised here. So when it comes to sin in our lives, we cannot take, if you're in Christ, a defensive posture, but an aggressive one on the offense instead of on the defense because our tendency is to forget the great power that is ours in Jesus Christ. A power of safety, but also for battle. When Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says this, since you were raised with Christ. Get that? This is who you are. You've been raised victorious out of the judgment into the new creation. As a result, since you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Why? For you have died in judgment at the cross. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. In Christ, you're victorious. So fight against sin in our lives. And you will be victorious when He returns. That is a guaranteed outcome because He is in your present reality right now. And what is true about Jesus is true about you in part, but not yet in full. So we should constantly be saying, if I'm Christ, I've passed through the judgment of God. I'm not who I once was, but I'm not yet who I will be. And so look at verse 8 of chapter 12 now. Because we live in that day. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble shall be like David. Right? So the feeble one, the one who is, who is wounded, most likely suffering some type of physical affliction, is to become a warrior like David. Because the Lord is there in all of His powerful presence defending His people. And as a result, He will be their God and warrior and the feeble will get exalted so that they have all the power and glory of King David. Now, David's greater son is Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, that is the power that is at work in you. Greater than the power that is at work in the world. And the king, the house of David will be exalted like God, like an angel of the Lord, the great, fierce angel of the Lord, who is the leader of the Lord's armies, who defeats all of the Lord's enemies. And brothers and sisters, this is where we're at. We're engaged with a war that has already been won. And we belong to the victor. And we are the spoils of the great battle that was waged at Calvary where God in His judgment came and won the battle against sin. And this is the irony of the gospel. That God's victory would come through the death of His own Son. But you see, that great day of judgment came and it became the day of deliverance. Precisely because the one who was struck was the one who knew no sin but became sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteous ones of God. 
And because Jesus, the great warrior king who passed through our judgment, is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And so this is what we do. This is what the Christian life is. We live between the times. Between two great and awful days. Awful because they are awe-inducing. Awe-inducing because these two days are the great days of God's act of judgment. The judgment He poured out on one man at the cross and then the judgment He will pour out on all men, women, and children on the final day. And so before that day comes, I beg you to flee to Jesus so that on that final day, He will present you without stumbling with great joy before God. You will either bow your knee before the great warrior king today and find Him to be a king of mercy who will protect you by bearing God's judgment or you will face that judgment on your own one day. But this is who, if you are in Christ, this is what we do. We live our lives between these two victories. Between the victory of the cross and the victory of Jesus' final coming in judgment. But in between these two days, I want us to see one more thing. Because God is promising something at the end of chapter 16. And it's this. That the nations will come and experience salvation too. Verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booth. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, there will be no rain on them. Right? Those, those nations that were trying to destroy God's people and it turned in rebellion against the Lord, they're going to be a faithful remnant that comes out of this. And they're going to be faithful to the Lord and experience the joy of the Feast of Tabernacles, this great celebration. And you see what God is doing? He's promising that no matter how far away people are from Him, there is no sin so great that it, it rules us out of his kingdom. None of us, as we often say, have sinned so far that Jesus can't reach us or sinned so little that we don't need Jesus. It's a clear vision of who becomes the object of his grace. He doesn't come for the friends, for the righteous, for the outwardly clean. He gathers those who were once his enemies and were in outright rebellion against him. Sinners and prostitutes drawn to Jesus. Those who were on the fringe because they were not good. Tax collectors. You. Me. And I want you to think this is simply a call to world missions. It's greater than that. Because if you're in Christ, you are fulfillment of this promise. You were once far off. He is brought near by the blood of the cross. You and I are the foreigners who have been made citizens of God's kingdom and his eternal city. And so we have to keep this in mind. That we live looking back at the cross, the judgment of God and victory over sin and the coming judgment of God. 
If we lose our sight of where we are going, we will fail on the way. Florence Chadwick was one of the first women to swing, swim the English Channel in both directions, there and back. And she did it. When she did it, she broke the record that had been set by any man who attempted to do it. She was fierce and a determined woman. So in 1952, she decided that she was going to swim the 26 miles between the California coast and the island of Catalina. And she traveled with a team whose job it was to uh, keep an eye out for sharks. And because the water was so frigid, there was a great chance she would cramp up and need to be brought out. So for 15 hours, she swam. 15 hours straight. But then a thick fog set in. And she got so disoriented that she couldn't see ahead of her. She told her team, I don't think I can go on anymore. And then she swam for another hour. And then she finally gave up. When she climbed back into the boat, she found that the fog had cleared just for a moment. And she, from that vantage point, could see that the island of Catalina was just a mile away. She had almost arrived. But the fog has so disoriented her that she couldn't see and she gave up. She lost perspective, so she lost heart. So she tried again. And again, the fog set in. But this time, she swam through the fog by doing this. She kept in her mind's eye a picture of the island of Catalina, her destination. So as disoriented as she was, as much as she wanted to give up, she envisioned where she was going. And if you're in Christ, the judgment of God has been poured out on Jesus so that the coming day of judgment is a day of hope. In gaining your guaranteed destination. And so keep this in your mind's eye in the fog of life. Revelation 21. Then I saw heaven, a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. The sea was representative of chaos. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And if you're in Christ, that is guaranteed. Because of this. This is what we sang our first song. Come behold the wondrous mercy, mystery, slain by death the God of life, But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected. As we will be when he comes. This 
good news for disorienting times like this. Let me pray for us. Lord, we have nothing to hope in but this. Jesus is enough. What great grace that you would pour out your judgment on the one that we pierced. So that by your grace, the pierced one becomes our gracious divine warrior and will bring the story to an end. We long for that day, now more than ever. And so this is our last cry. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.